I want to talk about your clothes this morning. I want to talk about what you're wearing to church. Or if you're really into fashion, I'll ask it another way. Not what are you wearing, but who are you wearing? I believe this morning I'm wearing a, uh, a sport coat from the French clothier Joseph A. Bank. No? I thought that was good, no? Brian's got some new boots from Kohl's, right? Check them out when you get a chance. Clothes are important, though, aren't they? Clothes are important. Mark Twain once put it this way. He said, clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence in society. <laughs> now, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. From the Garden of Eden onward, clothes have been more or less required, right? Recall that the first thing Adam and Eve did after eating from the tree was to cover themselves up, right? Remember that? They cover themselves up. Their eyes were opened and they felt shame. But clothes function as more than something we do to cover ourselves up. There's a, a book called The Language of Clothes written by author Alison Lurie. She writes that for thousands of years, human beings have communicated with one another first in the language of dress. Long before I'm near enough to talk to you on the street, in a meeting or at a party, you announce your gender, your age, your class through what you are wearing. Possibly you give me information or even misinformation about your occupation, your origin, your personality, your opinions, your tastes, your desires, your mood. And by the time we meet one another to converse, we have already spoken to one another in an older and more universal tongue. Now, I bet you weren't thinking about all that when you stood in front of your closet this morning. But if you think about it, it's true. What we wear communicates a great deal about who we are, about how we feel. Now, the importance of dress was revealed most boldly in a movie called The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> now, I can't defend that, titer, that title scripturally. Um, but that's a whole other sermon. But let me catch you up. There's a young woman. Her name is Andrea. She's played by Anne Hathaway. She's a recent college graduate and an aspiring journalist. And she lands a job as a personal assistant to the editor-in-chief of Runway Magazine, played by Meryl Streep. Um, this is based off of the real-life editor of Vogue. Okay? Now, here's the scene I want to show you this morning. Where are the belts for this uh, dress? Why is no one ready? Here. It's a tough call. They're so different. Mm. <laughs> Something funny? No. No, 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 nothing's, you know, it's just that both those belts look exactly the same to me, you know. I'm still learning about this stuff and, uh. <laughs> this stuff? Oh. <laughs> Okay, I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue. It's not turquoise. It's not lapis. It's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that 
In 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. And then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Why? example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. That word Paul uses for covenant can also be translated as as will, as like a, a last will and testament. Notice verse 18. He says, if the inheritance, like the inheritance from that will, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Seven times in these verses we read that word promise. Promise, promise, promise. It's all about God's promise. Think about it this way. If I promise my son Moses that when he turns 16, he will get to drive our used, but once upon a time, top of the line, 2003 Toyota, then when he turns 16, he should assume that he will get to drive that 2003 Toyota. What a deal, right? Why would he assume that? Because I promised, right? And what kid doesn't want to drive their parents' 24-year-old hand-me-down car? <laughs> it was originally driven by his grandmother, then given to his parents. It's got cool all over it, man. But imagine instead, if when Moses turns 16, I say, no, Moses, you actually can't drive that 2003 Toyota because you haven't earned it. 
You haven't gotten good enough grades. You haven't been nice enough to your little sister. You haven't made us proud enough in your after-school sports. I'm sorry. No can do. What would that say about the promise? And more importantly, what would that say about the person who promised? Paul continues, what then was the purpose of the law? Why does God give a promise and then follow up by giving the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions, because of our sin, until the seed, notice it's capitalized, he's, he's talking about Jesus, until Jesus, to whom the promise referred, had come. Verse 23, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. We were locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by, what's the word? Faith. faith. We might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Let me pause there for a moment. This is important. Uh, when we read sons in this verse, we might be thinking it's kind of patriarchal or chauvinistic, right? In our world today, we might say, wait a second, sons, what about me? I'm not a son, I'm a daughter. But that's not what's going on here. This is not patriarchal, this is not chauvinistic. Paul specifically uses the word sons because he's speaking about an inheritance. And in speaking about an inheritance, Paul knows that in the first century, only sons received an inheritance, though that might feel backwards to us. Right? And so Paul is actually being profoundly countercultural. He's saying that we all receive the inheritance. We are all recipients of the promise. It's not based on our performance, it's based on God's promise. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus. You all receive the inheritance from the will. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You are heirs according to the promise. See, Paul asks the question, and then Paul answers the question. He says, what's the purpose of the law? What's the reason for those 613 commandments? There's 248 we're supposed to do. There's 365 we're not supposed to do one for every day of the year. As Paul writes this, there was a group called the Pharisees. They were pretty sure they had it all figured out. Paul was one of them. You see, these Pharisees were so, so sure of themselves, they were so confident. This is true. They would pray these words every morning. They would say, I thank thee, God, that I am a Jew and not a Gentile, that I am a man and not a woman, and that I am a free man and not a slave. How could they be so bold to pray that prayer? Well, they were so convinced, like the passage Milt read for us a few moments ago, they were so convinced they had it all figured out. They were clothed in their righteousness, and they wanted everyone to see. Clothed as a Jew and not a Gentile, as a man and not a woman, as a free man and not a slave. Truth is, they weren't clothed in their own righteousness. They were like that, empire, that emperor with no clothes entirely. They'd been tricked into believing their own self-sufficiency. And it's only because of Jesus that Paul starts to figure this out. It's only because of Jesus that Paul realizes two things about the law. We see it here in these verses. First, he says, the law held us 
like we were prisoners. The law held us in captivity like a military guard under restraint. Now, this is true. A a graceless, works-based religion will make us duty-bound. It will give us a sense of bondage, right? A a graceless, works-based religion is impersonal. It leads to anxiety about where we stand with God. Why do I say that? Well, if our place in God's family has to do with our performance, then we're left wondering, have I ever given enough, right? Have I served enough? Have I prayed enough? Have you ever asked that question before? Just Bill. Okay, good. Just me and Bill are worried about that. What that tells us when we ask, have I done enough, is that our mindset is still a graceless, works-based religion. We're performing to earn our place. Martin Luther once put it this way. He said, the principal point of the law is not to make us better, but to make us worse. In other words, to show us our sin. And by the knowledge of our sin, we might be humbled. We might be terrified. We might feel bruised and broken. That when we hold ourselves up to the law, we might be driven to seek grace. And by that drive to seek grace, we might come to Jesus. In other words, without the law, without being held in captivity as a prisoner under restraint, we would not know the grace we need. The law reveals that we're not enough. Let me return to an earlier quite silly analogy. Moses will never be enough to earn that 2003 forerunner, which is a really silly thing to say. But, but Moses, if he has to perform to be given that position in our family, well, well he's never going to add up. It's, he's never going to be a real bronze, and he's never going to earn his place, but that's not the point. You see, the law reveals that we're never enough. That's the first thing Paul notices because of Jesus. And the second thing is this. He says, Paul says that the law is like a tutor. The law is like a schoolmaster or a guardian under whose supervision we are raised. In the first century, this tutor, this schoolmaster, this guardian would supervise and babysit and raise children on a parent's behalf. That sounds pretty good to me some days, but don't miss the implication. If the law, those 613 commandments, are the tutor, they're the schoolmaster, they're the guardian, what happens when the child grows up? There's a journalist once uh, named A.J. Jacobs, and he sought to live out every one of those 13 commandments to the letter of the law. He wrote a book about it called The Year of Living Biblically. But Paul tells us this. Paul says that impulse of trying to follow every jot and tittle of the law, that impulse is like hiring a babysitter for a full-grown man. Wives, don't get any ideas looking at your husbands. That's what you're not supposed to do, right? No. See, it's that metaphor of of a tutor, a guardian, a babysitter that prompts Paul to bring up this metaphor of our wardrobe. It's that thought that prompts him to ask us, what are you wearing? Or better yet, who? Who are you wearing? In Genesis, Adam and Eve will clothe themselves to, to cover up their shame until God himself makes garments for them. The prophet Isaiah will tell us that all of us have become unclean. Our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And this passage in Galatians extends the metaphor into something even further. Remember that Galatia was a Roman society governed by Roman ideals and a Roman worldview. 
Some were in and others were out. Some wore sweaters selected for them from a pile of stuff. Others prayed prayers about how grateful they were that they had it all figured out. See, Galatia is not entirely unlike 21st century America, but Paul says, Paul says, because of this Jesus, we can see how trying to have it all figured out, how trying to follow all the rules like A.J. Jacobs is like hiring a babysitter when we're all grown up. In Galatia, when a young man entered into adulthood, he would, for the first time, adorn himself with a toga. Now, a toga was only worn by certain people, only at a certain age, only a certain gender, only of a certain class. It's a great irony that the toga is incredibly inconvenient and horribly awkward. Have you ever tried to wear a toga for a toga party or something? It's the worst. It's drafty in the winter. It's sticky and hot in the summer. You have to keep one hand covered at all times. It was so difficult to wear a toga that people who could afford them would hire servants to come in at the beginning of the day and help them get dressed. This is true. But the toga had only one purpose. All of those inconveniences for one reason. The toga proclaimed status. It said, I am an adult. I am a male. I am a Roman citizen. I am in, and the rest of you all are out. If you wore a toga, you no longer wore a lumpy cerulean sweater. If you wore a toga, you were no longer a child, but you are now an adult. And this is the metaphor that Paul is playing with here. This is what he wants us to hear this morning. He wants us to know and to live into that toga. I'm stretching the metaphor a little further than it can go, aren't I? We're all invited to wear new clothes to grow up in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We no longer need to thank God that we're not like other people, but instead recognize that because of Jesus, we can be part of God's eternal family of faith. Paul says, if we're in Christ, then we are dressed, then we are complete. We are clothed in his righteousness, in his grace, in his promise. Notice, Paul doesn't say it's a, a both and. He says it's a neither nor. Paul doesn't say in God's family there's both Jew and Greek. There's both male and female. There's both uh, slave and free. He says it's neither nor. For all of you, for all of you who are baptized into Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Now, why would he say neither nor? Because if you're baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. You're no longer clothed with that old identity you had prior to your baptism. You've become a new person. If you're baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Republican nor Democrat. There is neither rich nor poor. There is neither young nor old. Why isn't it both and? Why is it neither nor? Because Paul wants us to get rid of those old wardrobe that we used to wear. Paul wants us to get rid of that prayer we used to pray. God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else. Paul wants us to ask ourselves that question. Who are you wearing this morning? Get rid of that lumpy cerulean sweater picked for you from a pile of stuff. Grow up into Christ. 
get rid of all those rules and regulations where you try to prove yourself to God and earn his love, it doesn't work. He says, be clothed by the one who took off the glory of heaven, who humbled himself. And what's more, this Jesus who was stripped naked, who was crucified on a cross and left to die. This Jesus came from heaven, was stripped naked, was crucified on a cross that we might be clothed in him. That his righteousness might be worn all the days of our life. That his love, that his promise might be seen on us from a mile away. You see, that's why Paul doesn't say both and. He says neither nor. Get rid of it. Grow up in Jesus. Get a whole new wardrobe. But until we see that he came from heaven for us, Until you see that this Jesus came from heaven for you, until you see that he was crucified for you, that he was stripped naked for you, then being clothed in him will be just another option among many. And you can put on Jesus one part of the day, and then you can put on something else a little later. Paul says, no, see that he did that for you. Be clothed in him. Grow up in him. Be a part of his eternal family of faith. The author of that book, The Language of Clothes, is right, isn't she? We communicate with one another in a language of dress. We communicate with one another who we are and what we do and how we feel. And Paul describes this new clothing, this new dress, in his letter to the church in Colossae. He says, he says this, as God's chosen people, you are holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves, put on Jesus, and wear around compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together, in perfect unity. Do any among us need greater compassion? Are there any here who want to develop a deeper kindness? Is there any of us who need more humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love? I don't know about you, but I find myself wearing all kinds of things that wouldn't be described with those words. And there's only one way to wear those things, and his name is Jesus. So what are you wearing this week? What are you wearing for the rest of the day? What are you wearing right now? Or better yet, who? Who?